0: Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a spring of life. I wonder if you can relate to that. I wonder if you know the longing and the ache of deferred hope, something you're longing for, looking for, waiting for, that just never seems to arrive. It always seems around the next corner. You've desired it perhaps for so long without seeing its fruition that you feel heartsick for it. Now, what, what about if that thing longed for is something that's been promised by God, something that you can point to clearly? It's been plainly revealed in his word. This is true. This is promised. And yet the evidence for its fulfillment seems to be lacking ...in your situation. When hope is deferred, the heart is made sick. Well, that's precisely the situation Joseph is facing in Genesis chapter 40. Back in chapter 37, while Joseph was 17, God gave him a powerful pair of uh, prophetic dreams... ...indicating a future reality where his brothers and father would be bowing themselves to the ground in homage to him... ...in a position of kingly rule and authority. By now, 11 years have passed and his current reality could hardly be further removed from that image of honor and influence. He's been attacked by his brothers and sold to some nomadic traders. He's been taken to Egypt where he served as a slave in the home of an Egyptian officer... And then he was falsely accused of sexual assault and was thrown into a dungeon where the king's prisoners are kept. So here he is down in Egypt, the the land of graves, down in a pit a thousand miles from his home and virtually invisible to the world above as life moves along. How can faith survive in a situation like this? How can the promises of God ever come to pass against such impossible odds? We'll find some instructive counsel for facing deferred hope by considering Joseph's plight in Genesis 40. Now for the note takers in the room I need to make a a note for you concerning a change in the sermon title and the scope of what we're going to cover. So the bulletin Uh, says that this message is titled, They Brought Him Out of the Pit. And it says it's going to go all the way through chapter 41, verse 36. With apologies to Joseph, he's going to have to wait in the pit another week uh, because we're not going to make it out of chapter 40 today. So since we're staying in chapter 40, the new message title is simply this, Remember Me. So if you want to put that at the top of your page or cross out the title you already wrote down, I'm sorry, it's Remember Me. Genesis chapter 40. Okay, so remembering that Joseph has been thrown into prison and that at the end of chapter 39 we saw him rise within the, uh, that prison to a position of leadership where the prison keeper entrusted uh, to him virtually all of the management and care of the other inmates. Uh, let's read the first four verses of Genesis 40, uh, and, which will set the scene for today's action. Genesis chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Some time after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. All right, so the scene is set. We've got these two officials of Pharaoh that have offended him. In fact, the, the phrase is literally that they sinned against their master. They've offended their lord, the king, and they've been tossed into this prison. Now, the cupbearer and the baker would have been responsible for the drink and food, respectively, that made it to the Pharaoh's table. So to ensure the king's safety, these guys would have needed strict control over every element of this enterprise of feeding Pharaoh, right? They would have needed control over the the supply chain and over all the people who were involved in getting food and drink to Pharaoh. So the producers and the merchants and the delivery guys and the cooks and all across the board. You can imagine it would be quite a, a process, quite an industry in itself perhaps, to provide continuous food and drink for Pharaoh and his household. And so... While these men may, these may seem to us like menial tasks, they are important jobs in the palace, and Pharaoh would need to have complete trust in these men. And it seems that something has gone awry. So the cupbearer, the chief cupbearer, and the chief baker have landed themselves in prison. We don't know what it is. Perhaps there's been a plot to poison the king, and it was nearly successful, or it made it through uh, these guys who were the gatekeepers, right? supposed to make sure that nothing poisoned made it into uh, the king's palace. Could it be that one or both of these guys were co-conspirators? Maybe they were in on this plot to poison the king. We don't know. But nevertheless, Pharaoh throws them in prison, and so they find themselves in the same dungeon where Joseph is. The fact that he doesn't immediately just kill them might indicate that there's an investigation going on trying to discern who, uh, who is guilty in this. It's interesting to wonder who the captain of the guard is who's mentioned here. We were told in Genesis 39 when Joseph ended up in slavery in the house of Potiphar that Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So it would make sense if this is still him. However, he's not named anymore. He's referred to a few times in this passage and only as the captain of the guard. So it could be That it's a new captain. We know some time has passed. We don't know how much. We're told some time after this. All right, So some time has passed. It could be a different captain of the guard, Potiphar's successor or whatever. But it also could be that it's still Potiphar and he's just not named. And there's a couple of things in the text that might suggest that. So in verse 3 we're told that the the cupbearer and the baker were put in custody in the house of the captain of the guard... Remember, the the prison, the king's prison seems connected to the house of the captain of the guard, and we read all about how Joseph was in the house of his master. And then in verse 7, we're told that he, Joseph, was with him in custody in his master's house. So perhaps his master, there is a reference to Potiphar, whom he had served as a slave. We're not sure. It's a bit of a digression, but could be Potiphar, could be another captain of the guard, Nevertheless, here are these two officers of Pharaoh who have landed themselves in hot water and are in the same dungeon where Joseph is. Let's look at what happens in verses 5 through 8. Why are we talking about a cupbearer and a baker all of a sudden? Here we go. And one night, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. We're going to pause right there. So, dreams come back into the, into the center of the story. Before we talk about the dreams, I want you to notice something about Joseph, a detail that you could easily overlook. Joseph, the, the prison caretaker, essentially, right? He's been given sort of leadership and influence over all of the, the prisoners and sort of the keeping of, of duties there. He is tasked specifically in verse 4 with attending these high profile prisoners, right? They said the master. Uh, uh, excuse me, where, where were we? Verse 4, the, guard, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. So now specifically among all the various tasks he's carrying out in the prison, he is supposed to keep watch on these guys. And I want you to notice that he's paying attention to them. Right? He cares for them. He notices when they're feeling down and asks about it. What interest would a prison guard have with how his inmates are feeling? Why are you feeling sad today? Well, I don't know. Uh, It could be that I'm in prison and awaiting my execution, right? Or what's it to you? Why do you care, right? There's all kinds of ways they could have responded to this Hebrew fellow asking why are they feeling sad. But it's interesting, it's worth pointing out that Joseph is intentional in his care for these men. It's just another glimpse, another hint of Joseph's character and godliness. That while he is in the worst of situations, he is nevertheless aware of others and attentive to their needs and their concerns. And so he asks them, what's going on? Why are you downcast today? And so they tell him about their dreams. Once again, a pair of dreams play a prominent role in the story. Joseph had his own couple of dreams back in chapter 37, which got this whole thing started off to begin with. And here now is another pair of dreams, this time given to Pharaoh's imprisoned officers. And of course, they are not the last dreams that we'll see in this story. And they tell him when he says, why are you downcast? They say, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Now, we learn later that Pharaoh has some magicians and wise men who apparently uh, were relied upon for these kinds of services. Uh, But, of course, the cupbearer and baker don't have access to these magicians anymore, and so when they have a dream, they can't just call up the Pharaoh's wise men and say, hey, help me with the dream, because they're stuck in prison. And so they're confused, perplexed by the dreams, perhaps worried by them, and have no one to tell them what they mean. But maybe there is someone to interpret them. Maybe there is still hope for their dreams being deciphered after all. So Joseph in verse 8 says, Don't interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. Now note also, Joseph doesn't say, Hey, I've actually got kind of a specialty for this thing. I'm really good at interpreting dreams. This is one of my unique skill sets. So why don't you tell me the dreams and I will tell you what they mean. What he says is interpretations belong to God. He puts God on the hook, as it were, for interpreting these dreams. Listen, dream interpretations belong to God. If you'll tell me the dreams, God will tell you what they mean. And so Joseph, even here, even in this low position, has enough confidence in God to put his reputation on the line, as it were, by saying God will give you an interpretation for these dreams. And so... We'll see two dreams and two interpretations. We'll take them one at a time. Let's look at verses 9 through 13 and read about the first of these dreams. Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup And placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. All right, so the first dream sounds kind of complex, but Joseph has a very clear and quick interpretation. Ready. The Lord has clearly given it to him. There's a few details about the dream that are worth mentioning. First of all, there's a vine with three branches. Three branches. Secondly, the fruit that's mentioned, these grapes, have three distinct actions. The the clusters budded, and then they blossomed, and then they ripened into grapes. All right, so there's three actions. And then there's three uh, statements about Pharaoh's cup. So at first, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. Second, I pressed the grapes into Pharaoh's cup. And third, I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. So there's this series of threes throughout this dream, which becomes very clear when Joseph says, here's the interpretation. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. That is, he will restore you to your office, to your previous Position So perhaps whatever investigation is going on upstairs will lead to his exoneration, and so the cupbearer will be restored. Well, this is good news indeed for the cupbearer, and Joseph decides to take advantage of an opportunity perhaps to gain some new footing for himself. Look at verses 14 and 15 and what Joseph says to the cupbearer. <clears throat> Only remember me when it is well with you, And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. The language that Joseph uses here in his plea to the cupbearer is covenantal language. The word remembers, the Hebrew zakhar, which is used a few other places in Genesis to speak specifically of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. So, for example, in Genesis 8, chapter 1, uh, chapter 8, verse 1, when God remembered Noah and made the waters subside and the the ark landed. In Genesis 19, 29, when God remembered Abraham and Lot to save them from his wrath that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 30, 22, when God remembered Rachel, Joseph's mother, and opened her womb. This is that same word for God taking thought for his people and keeping covenant with them, acting in faithfulness to his promises to them. And so he pleads with the cupbearer, remember me. Have covenant faithfulness toward me. And then there's another word he uses that's very reminiscent or or evocative of the the love of God. When he says, do me this kindness. The Hebrew behind kindness is chesed, loving kindness, covenant mercies. This is God's kind of love and blessing and faithfulness to his people. It's used over and over in the Old Testament to describe God's faithful love toward his people. People And so Joseph, in pleading with the cupbearer to remember him and to show him loving kindness, is essentially asking of a man what only God can provide. He pleads with the cupbearer to rescue him from his plight, but his plea is directed toward the wrong audience. It is Yahweh who would remember him and show him loving kindness. Joseph, don't give up yet. Don't forget the presence and providence of God. And I wonder if we are perhaps at times inclined to look to people for what only God can give. In what ways might you be asking and expecting a person, a friend, a family member, a church leader, a politician, to bring about your rescue Have you prayed to the Lord for deliverance, at least as fervently as you've sought out the help and maneuvering of other people on your behalf? Set your hope in God, not in man. Psalm 146 says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Goes on to say, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, his God. That is where our hope must be anchored, not in any human or earthly maneuvering or manipulating that we can arrange. And in a way, what Joseph says, though to the wrong audience probably, is a decent example of what our prayers to God might look like in seasons of darkness and need and deferred hope. Look at what he says in verse 15. Or excuse me in verse 14 he begins remember me right he he pleads for mercy show me kindness remember and then in verse 15 he brings complaints right i was stolen out of the land of the hebrews and here also i've done nothing that they should put me into the pit right i was kidnapped i've been treated unjustly so he brings these complaints about his plight ...and about his situation and the brokenness he's living in. And he pleads for mercy. Again, the cupbearer is not the right audience. No human is the right audience for that plea and that complaint. But believe me, the Lord, your God, is able to hear and to handle your complaint. And indeed, he welcomes it. The book of Psalms is a beautiful, wide-ranging, God-inspired resource... For carrying all manner of burdens and complaints to God in prayer. There's a handful of psalms that are known as psalms of lament. What they are doing is complaining. What they are doing is coming to God as our king and our keeper. And placing before him our burdens and our needs and our complaints. Calling on him to rescue. And then expressing confident trust. I will wait for you. I will trust you. In you, A few examples of those, if you want to look these up later on your own, a few examples of Psalms of Lament are Psalm 13, Psalm 25, Psalm 31, and Psalm 86. I would commend these to you as a place to start. If you're in a pit and you don't know where to go, start here. Bring your complaint to the Lord, using his own inspired words to do so. Well, Joseph's not the only one who sees a glimmer of hope here, right? He sees, oh, wow, so this cupbearer is maybe going to get out of prison here in just a few days. Maybe I can sort of ride his coattails. So just as he takes the opportunity to appeal to the cupbearer to help him out, so the baker sees an opportunity perhaps to get a happy, hopeful prophecy too. Let's see how that works out for him in verses 16 through 19. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Once again, there's some parallels there to the previous dream. In three days... Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. I don't know why Joseph felt the need to, to provide some literary panache to the way that he delivered this news. Pharaoh will lift up your head from you. There's some, this crazy thick irony here. I'm sure the baker is like, oh, that sounds great. Oh, wait, what? That's not where, that's not where I thought that was going, right? Well, he was hoping for a favorable interpretation, but no such luck, baker, sorry about that. So he sees these three baskets, cake baskets on his head, and there's all sorts of baked goods in the top one. They're intended for Pharaoh, but the birds are eating the goods from the top of the basket. And so Joseph tells him, well, the interpretation is this. Your head is going to be lifted up, but not in the way that you think, not in the same way as the cupbearer who will be restored. Your head will be lifted up. From you. Now, whether that means like an actual beheading or if it's some kind of graphic way to depict a hanging, we're not exactly sure, and you probably don't want to think about it for very long. But this would have been especially bad news for the baker because the Egyptians believed that the preservation of the body was necessary in order to enter the afterlife. That's why there's all these mummies and stuff, right? And they t- take such great care to embalm and preserve the bodies of the dead because you have to have an intact body in order to enter the afterlife. And so here the baker learns that he will not only be killed but also left exposed to the elements and th- his flesh eaten by birds, which would also compromise his hope for an afterlife as well. Now, that's not how the afterlife really works, but that's what they believed. And so this would have been especially dark News for the baker to receive. Well, what happens with these interpretations? Did Joseph get this one wrong? What do you think? Let's look in verses 20 through 22. <clears throat> On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. What a birthday celebration for the king. The wine abounds, since our cupbearer is back on the job, and for the day's entertainment, a hanging. What a strange series of events. Side note, only two birthday parties mentioned in the Bible, this one for Pharaoh And then one for Herod Antipas in Matthew 14. And both of them involve an execution. Pharaoh's chief baker here and John the Baptist in Matthew 14 at Herod's birthday party. So maybe the Bible isn't the best source of birthday party ideas. (laughs) Let's just quickly observe before we move on and get to the, the end of this chapter. Let's quickly observe an obvious truth. God's word came true. He gave the dreams, he gave Joseph the interpretation, and it came about just as he said it would. God will always make good on his promises. His word is trustworthy and true. You can take that to the bank. And it would be good for Joseph to remember that very fact as he considers his own situation and his own deferred hope. Well, that's all of the action of the chapter, That's all that happens, so to speak, in chapter 40, but there's one more observation that the author makes for us that's good for us to reflect on. Look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Joseph was so hopeful that this may be his opportunity, that he might be able to follow the cupbearer's favor in Pharaoh's Sight and be released from prison, but it was not to be because the cupbearer did not do what Joseph pleaded with him to do. Please remember, please show kindness. And the cupbearer, once his plight is over and he's back in the palace and all is looking good for him, he forgets about Joseph. And the very next chapter, the first verse of chapter 41, says, After two whole years Pharaoh dreamed after two whole years after the glimmer of hope at the cupbearer's dream and its quick fulfillment surely Joseph would have been filled probably for the first time in a while with hope things might finally turn around maybe things are starting to look up for me but then as days turn into weeks and weeks into months, he came slowly to realize that he had been forgotten. And the most bitter pain would surely have been not that he'd been forgotten by the cupbearer, but the sense that he had been forgotten by God. He left me here in this pit. It's maybe even like he was teasing me. Why give me this glimmer of hope and then take it away? Authors Ian Duguid and Matt Harmon say, Time may have, been, may have accelerated in the cupbearer's dream, but it must have slowed down to a crawl for Joseph as he endured his prison nightmare for two more years until God's time was finally ripe. Because we know, of course, that Joseph's waiting is not for nothing. We know that the story God is writing requires Joseph to be ready at just the right moment when Pharaoh comes calling. And we know it has to happen this way in order for God's purposes to be fulfilled, not just for Joseph, but for the entire land of Egypt and especially for the covenant family. But Joseph can't see any of that from where he's sitting. All he sees are the walls of a dungeon and a lost opportunity. That's where Joseph is sitting at the end of Genesis 40. If you had an intercom into Joseph's prison, what might you say to Joseph at this moment? What hope might you offer him? What exhortation and encouragement might you deliver to him? Joseph, I know this feels terrible. I know it looks like the end. I know you're despairing for any sense of hope. But the story isn't over. Friends, despair assumes that you know the end of the story. Despair is only appropriate when there is no way out. When there is no possible redemption or rescue or restoration that could happen. You despair when you think you know how this is going to turn out and it's going to be bad. But when you serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when you serve the God of Joseph, the story is never over. The story that he's written is still unfolding in time and space. For Joseph, the next two years of waiting seemed like forsakenness. But Yahweh has not forgotten Joseph. And be assured, friend, he's not forgotten you. What deliverance are you awaiting? What feels to you like it may never happen? What hope is always out there in the distance beyond your reach? How are you tempted to believe you have been forsaken by God? Don't forget the repeated refrain of chapter 39. Yahweh was with Joseph. Eight times we were told in chapter 39. Yahweh is with Joseph. And he's still there. And in our affliction, he's still there. May the Lord grant us faith to believe that he has not forgotten us. And he never will. From the outside looking in, Joseph's story is kind of a mess. And Joseph himself is pretty much a loser, right? He's a slave and a criminal. From a worldly perspective, why should we pay any attention to Joseph? Why does this guy get his story written down for posterity in the Bible? The world's perspective of Joseph doesn't afford much honor or significance. But as Jim Hamilton says, the world's estimation of our standing is not ultimate, Because even while Joseph is forgotten by the world and forsaken by the powers that be in Egypt, essentially left to rot in prison, nevertheless, the Lord is with him. The Lord blesses everything he does. The Lord reveals prophetic truth to him. The real treasure that one might possess is not worldly status or material wealth. It is the favor of God. And the favor of God is a treasure that anyone can possess if you'll simply turn from sin and trust in Christ. That is the gift of the gospel. That is the free gift that God bestows on anyone who will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. For the Christian who's united to Christ by faith, the blessings of Psalm 146 that I quoted a little earlier, belong not just to Israel, for whom they were originally written, but to you. I want you to listen to the last several verses of Psalm 146 and recognize not only how relevant these promises are to Joseph in his pit, but what they mean for you and me as we navigate life in this fallen world. Listen to Psalm 146, verses 5 through 10. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh, his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoner free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. Yahweh loves the righteous. Yahweh watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise Yahweh. Through faith in the completed work of Jesus... By trusting for your salvation upon his life of obedience, his death as a sacrifice, and his resurrection from the dead, the favor of God's presence is yours forever. And nothing can take that away from you. Not even a deferred hope or an unfulfilled desire. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace toward us. We thank you for the loving kindness, the covenant faithfulness you have shown us in Jesus. We praise you that every need that we have, you have supplied in Christ. We are those who from time to time are in seasons of doubt and despair and despondency. We are those who find ourselves in seasons in a pit, unaware, unable to even imagine how things might change, how things might get better. But Lord, we plead with you to give us the faith to trust you. Give us the faith to believe that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. And by that awareness and by that confidence, give us the strength to keep going, to keep believing, to keep hoping. And may our lives, in or out of the pit, be used by you for the blessing of others and for the announcing of the kingdom of Christ, for whose glory we now pray. Amen.